everybody, welcome back to Stuff You Don't Need to Know. This is Jay and September rolling on. That means Listener Requests Month is rolling on as well. This one is a really, really good one and it's actually a bit of a timely one because uh, this next request that I'm going to do comes from Teddy Brown who runs the Teddy Brown podcast. Uh, he doesn't have an Instagram or a Facebook or anything for his podcast, but if you have Anchor, if you're listening to this through Anchor, uh, search for Teddy Brown. He actually does a podcast about rock and roll, classic rock and roll uh, from the blues all the way through the 50s into the into the 60s a bit. It's a pretty fun listen, but he actually gave me a really, really good request, and it was something I'm kind of glad I hadn't done it yet because now I get to do it for Listener Request Month. So it is September 2019. 25 years ago this month, a film came out that really kind of revolutionized and really shook up the film scene. Uh, it was an independent film. Uh, it was really, it was really different, really different from anything we had really seen before. And it had really gone on to influence filmmaking really from that point going forward. Um, like I said, this was a film that really came out of nowhere. And next thing you knew, um, it won the top of uh, it won the top award at the uh, ninety four Cannes Film Festival, and it was nominated for seven Academy Awards um, later on that year, including Best Picture. Um, it got some actor and supporting actor nominations, uh, I believe, director as well, uh, and it ended up winning um, Best Original Screenplay. If you haven't figured it out by now, this is the second film from Quentin Tarantino, Pulp Fiction. Like I said, came out in 94, so <clears throat> at that time, I had, I had already been working. I had been working for about a year, and I hadn't heard of Reservoir Dogs, or if I did, maybe, you know, it was kind of on the fringes there. I didn't really know too much about it, uh, and then this film came out, and again, it really didn't come out to a lot of fanfare. It didn't come out to a lot of hoopla, because uh, you got to remember, back then, 94, internet, you know, no, we, we really didn't have much of that out there. Um at that time, I was working in Manhattan. So in a way, I was almost kind of like, you know, I, I shouldn't say in a way. I mean, I was. I was working at really a cultural epicenter of, of you know, world. I mean, New York is really, it's a very cultural city. Um, there's a lot that goes on there. There's a very diverse group of people that live and work and play there. And, you know, a film like this breaks out, there's going to be a lot of talk about it and a lot of buzz about it, um, you know, in the city. And working in the city, you know, I really started to hear about it. I heard great things about it. I heard, well, this is what I heard about it. <clears throat> I heard a lot of good things and I heard a lot of bad things about it. And what I kind of noticed was people over the age of maybe mid to late 30s into their 40s really weren't very keen on the film they thought it was very sloppy disorganized silly stupid contrived this and that people under age of 30 loved it raved about it thought it was absolutely great all of a sudden wanted to listen to 60s surfers music for some reason so i was like all right there's there's definitely something going on here so 94 i'm 23 so you if you could do math, you just figured out my age. Um, yeah, and like I said, you know, I've been working for about a year, uh, working in Manhattan, and I figured, why not? You know, it, it's the, this film seems to really be generating a lot of buzz. Let me go check it out. Uh, I was very, very lucky. 
where I worked, I mean, there was, I mean, I worked in Manhattan. There were, there were tons of movie theaters, you know, which is, I mean, there was one, I think it was like a block or two away from where I worked, but, uh, somebody in our office, uh, you know, she was like an aide in our office. Uh, she was going to school at the time. Um, kind of like, uh, kind of like a goth chick a bit. Um, you know, like we were like, some of us were planning like, all right, let's go see this movie. Let's go see Pulp Fiction. You know, it's playing, you know, after work right around the corner <clears throat> and this girl, and I remember her name, her name was Natalie. She was like, nah, you got to go down to the village and you got to watch it at the Angelica. And I was like, okay, why? I mean, I didn't know a whole lot about the village. I didn't know a whole lot about the ins and outs. You know, my knowledge of the city and, you know, listen, I I was born and raised in Jersey, um, you know, made very few trips into the city before I started working there. So my knowledge of the city was really, really limited. Uh, the Angelica was a theater. It was a, it was a film theater. Uh, I believe before that it was an actual, you know, theater theater. And, um, it's kind of claim to fame at that time was, you know, they didn't really show the big Hollywood movies. There It was like a revivalist kind of theater. Uh, you would see, you know, movies from the forties, fifties and sixties. And, and again, with that, maybe not even the really major hits, like some of the, some of the ones that kind of flew under the radar, uh, a lot of independent films you would see there. You would see some foreign films there. I mean, this was like, you know, you're sort of like your art house, coffee house kind of theater. Uh, it's no longer there. Uh, from what I understand, I, I believe, you know, look, times are changing. You know, it's, it's very easy to access films like this, you know, really in other ways, shapes and forms. And, you know, going to the movies, just it really wasn't, uh, it's really, not like like it was back then nowadays and i'm not sure how long ago but i know that you know eventually it went out of business it lost its lease and uh, i really don't know what you know what the fate of the angelica is you know if uh for all i know it became a target i mean which is really kind of sad anyway we're not talking about that <clears throat> so yeah we went to this it was like an art house kind of theater i mean it had like, uh, you know, it had its snack bar, but the snack bar kind of had that old time feel that I remember as a kid, you know, which really wasn't that long ago. But, you know, it just didn't have that sort of like sleek sort of corporate look to it. Um, it was one of the first movie theaters that I ever went into that like served coffee. I was like, you know, I mean, nowadays you, you go to a an AMC or a Regal, I mean, you, know, you can get a meal. Um, you know, this place was serving coffee. I was like, you know, coffee in the movies. This is this is really really weird. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about Pulp Fiction. So yeah, I saw this film, you know, back in uh, late '94, and I don't know. I just, <clears throat> you know, I mean, before that, I, w- I would say I had seen a lot of good films, you know, and. Uh, Stuff that wasn't commercial, you know, stuff that you would kind of hear about on the fringes, like a Pulp Fiction, like a Reservoir Dogs. I was sort of like, well, I don't know, you know, I'm not seeing a lot of commercials for it, you know, um, 
Siskel and Ebert aren't really talking about films like this. You know, I, w- I would tune in like every was it like every Saturday or Sunday. I would watch Siskel and Ebert, and uh, there was like Rex Reed who wrote a a uh, big movie uh, review for it was like the the Post or the Daily News, and uh, I think there was a guy uh, Leonard Malton or Richard Malton. I forget who it was. I mean, you know, there were like these film critics, and 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 you know, seeing commercials on TV. You know, you didn't really see commercials for Pulp Fiction. You know, you didn't really see commercials for Reservoir Dogs. Um, Welcome to the Dollhouse. I mean, you didn't see. You know, you 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 didn't see commercials for this stuff, but you read about it in the Village Voice. You know people that were in the know would talk about it you know it, it, it would it would get passed around you know through word of mouth so it had a real sort of almost like subversive nature to it so like seeing this film you know at the angelica you know sort of like an underground subversive theater seeing this film that you know nobody really knows a whole lot about and it seems like older people really don't like this film but the younger crowd really really seems to like it i mean i was psyched and i was pumped and like i said I think this was a great film. And, you know, when I got the request to do it, I was really thrilled because I was kind of planning on doing it anyway, being that this is the 25th anniversary of this film. And, you know, over the summer, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood came out, which Quentin Tarantino has said was going to be his last film. Um, I really figured, you know, let's let's talk about it. And I'm really glad it got recommended. So, like I said... Reservoir Dogs had come out before this, and I didn't see it. I saw Pulp Fiction first before I saw Reservoir Dogs. And in a way, I'm kind of glad that I saw Pulp Fiction before I saw Reservoir Dogs. Because I think if I saw Reservoir Dogs first, it was de- you know, it was his first film. It was a little unpolished. Um, some of the dialogue went on a little bit too much. And uh, I, I don't know. It, it, I mean, Reservoir Dogs is a great film. Don't get me wrong. But I think if I hadn't seen Pulp Fiction first, I don't know if I would have appreciated Reservoir Dogs as much. And, you know, I can't go back in time now and change things around. You know, I can't say now that, no, Reservoir Dogs can totally stand on its own and, and I didn't need to see Pulp Fiction first. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. And we'll never know. But like I said, this was a hell of a film. Um, I mean, this is a huge ensemble cast. I mean, this film is probably famous for bringing back John Travolta. Uh, a lot of people talked about that, the fact that, you know, John Travolta's in a film. And, you know, I was like, I mean, the last time I saw him, I think, was uh, the sequel to um, the sequel to Saturday Night Fever, Staying Alive. Uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, you just, it was like after, after he made Staying Alive, which I think was like the early 80s, he did some, you know, he did a couple of other films that were kind of like uh, direct-to-video maybe back then we would call it. I mean, they weren't really well-known films at all. I mean, he, for whatever reason, I mean, after about the mid-80s, I mean, John Travolta disappeared. And, you know, I mean, people look back on this film now and they were just like, you know, yeah, this was the film that brought him back. I mean, the thing is, is I think at the time is people, I don't know if people didn't want him back. I think what it was, was when he was cast, I think there was like a shock, like, why would you cast him? I mean, he hasn't been in anything since like the early to mid eighties. You know, why would you cast this guy? Um, and it was a breakout role for him. I believe he was nominated for a Best Supporting Award along with Samuel L. Jackson. Um, 
I mean, I mean, that's the thing is like you, you, you look at this cast, you know, let me bring up the cast list here real, real quick. Like I said, John Travolta, uh, playing Vincent Vega, um, Samuel L. Jackson playing Jules Winfield. Uh, you have Uma Thurman who, I mean, at that time, you know, she really wasn't a well-known actress yet. Uh, Harvey Keitel, who, you know, older people probably would recognize Harvey, Ke- Harvey Keitel. I didn't really recognize him, you know, at the time when I saw it. But now when I look back on it, I'm like, oh, my God, of course you got to of course you got to cast Harvey Keitel. Tim Roth, who this was really the first time I had seen Tim Roth. And again, Tim Roth kind of got his American debut. I mean, I don't know what his status was, uh, you know, over in the UK, um, you know, but he was uh, he was kind of the star of Reservoir Dogs, uh, you know, and here he is uh, in the opening. Well. I'll talk about the uh, sort of the flow of the film and all the different chapters and everything. Um, you know, Ving Rhames as Marcellus Wallace. Um, and again, you know, I'm looking back on it now. I don't think I knew who Ving, Ra- who Ving Rhames was at the time. I don't think he was that big of a name yet. Um, Eric Stoltz had a ca- not a cameo in it. He had a small part in it. Um, I didn't realize that he was the guy from Mask. I had seen the film Mask, and of course, you know, uh, true life story about a about a young man who had a um, a condition that caused a very severe facial, you know, disorder or. Um, you know, so you really wouldn't recognize him, you know, under all, all the prosthetics and makeup and everything. But I kind of like had heard of him. I kind of heard of Eric Stoltz. Um, Rosanna Arquette, of course, is in this. Probably the people that I recognize the most, of course, were Bruce Willis. I mean, Bruce Willis, to me at that time, he was probably like the big name guy for me. And he doesn't even really get top billing in this film. It's really more. Samuel L. Jackson and, and and John Travolta and Uma Thurman, like they're kind of like the big names or, or or the sort of like the big breakout stars and characters of this film. Um, but Bruce Willis playing Butch, uh, I mean, to me, you know, I remember him from Moonlighting and and from Die Hard, and it was sort of like wow, like to me, he was the big star here. And Christopher Walken, of course, who has a very small but a very significant role in this film. You know, I mean, I was a fan at that time. I was I was a fan of 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 um. Of Christopher Walken, so you know when I saw him, I was really, really happy to see him there. Um, but I think one of the things that was really, really unique about this film, you know, was the fact that it was the fact that it, it, it took place out of chronological order. Um, you know, when you look at it, when you look at it, there's really, there's really sort of seven parts to this film, and you know, you have a prologue which is the diner scene, the famous diner scene that kicks it off, which, you know, I mean, I think that's the thing that hit it is, is, is you're, you're watching this opening, this diner scene, um, between Rosanna, was it Rosanna or was it Patricia Arquette that was, oh no, it was Tim Roth, uh, Tim Roth and Amanda Plummer. I'm sorry. Um, you know, when you see it, you're sort of like, Okay, this is this is a film about a diner heist, you know, or or maybe they're like like a like a pair of criminals, like a Bonnie and Clyde type, like like what's going on here, uh, you know. Then they go through the diner scene, and then up next we get Samuel L. Jackson, and we get um, excuse me, we get Samuel L. Jackson, and we get uh, John Travolta, kind of having their little dialogue, um, you know. 
talking about. I mean, this is this is the famous, you know, Royale cheese scene, you know, and uh, what they call burgers over in Europe, and uh, you know, I I I, I think. I think uh, I think at the end of that was when I think Samuel L. Jackson asked about he asked about like another kind of burger and he was you know uh, John Travolta's kind of famous line is like you know like yeah like I didn't I, I, no, I didn't go to Wendy's or you know whatever it was um, so it's like okay we're starting off with 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 the beginnings of a heist at a diner. Now we see the two guys drive. Like, okay, are, who are these guys? Like, are they cops? Or like, are they driving? And then they're they're going to see what's going on in this diner. You know, you start to realize, you know, this film is being told out of order, and you're almost sort of like, okay, wait a minute, are these all separate stories? But as the film goes on, you realize this is sort of like uh, a day, two, maybe three days in the lives of these people, and how they're just so intertwined and intermingled, and what I really loved about this this version of storytelling or this type of storytelling was it really – I mean, you're paying attention to this film. I mean, this is an ultra-violent, over-the-top – I mean, the violence is over-the-top in this film, just like it is in, in, in every Quentin Tarantino film. You know, you're paying attention to it. But the way the story is being told, you are really paying attention to it because you don't want to miss a single thing because, you know, when the next chapter comes up, which is not going to, you know, follow the normal flow of the story, you know, it's either going to introduce some new people and you're going to have to try to figure out how they're connected to everybody else or we're going to be jumping back and forth and this and that. Um, One of the things I remember about this, about this film before I went to see it was... um, like I said, a lot of people, a lot of the detractors, uh, a lot of people that did not like this film did not like this sort of disjointed storytelling at all. And I remember hearing more than one person say, well, it's really, really stupid because they killed John Travolta. Oh, by the way, do I have to say spoiler alert? Um, you know, they killed John Travolta, but then he comes back later on. And I was like, okay, that sounds really weird. But when you watch the film... It's really obvious what happens. I mean, yes, we do see him get killed, but then we see him later on. Um, you know, we pretty much see him late. You know, we see him later on. Uh, you know, with the whole, I think the chapter is called the Bonnie situation, and then the diner scene wraps up. You know, and kind of finishes this movie off. Um, you know, it's. Yeah. I'm just like, how, how could you not pick up on that? You know, it, th- this is not a linear story. I mean, it's a linear story that's chopped up and kind of like put in a blender and spun around. Um, so, you know, if you kind of take a look at the different chapters and whatnot, and you were to number them, um, you would have the prologue, which is the opening diner scene. That would be number one. Uh, then you have uh, the second chapter, we'll call it. Um was a prelude uh, entitled, I think it was like Vincent Vega and Marcellus Wallace's wife. Then we get the next chapter, which is Vincent Vega and Marcellus Wallace's wife. Uh, then we get a prelude to the gold watch um, where you kind of get a flashback and then you get a present day scene. Then you have the gold watch. Then you have the Bonnie situation. And then you have your epilogue, which is the diner scene wrapping things up. So you watch it. That's the order that you're watching it in. If you were to sort of like cut this movie apart and tape it back together so the story made sense, you would sort of get, um, you would get like, I think like the gold watch scene uh, with Christopher Walken, 
that would start it off. Then you would get the scene of uh, Jules and Vince driving and the whole, you know, Royale with cheese and talking about uh, Marcellus Wallace's wife. Uh, then, you know, you would get the Bonnie situation, which was, you know, pretty much took place after Jules and Vince get the briefcase and they accidentally kill the guy in the car, you know, <laughs> and the wolf has to show up and take care of things. Harvey Keitel, I met that was, a, that was probably one of my favorite chapters, the Bonnie situation. Um, then you would go back to, uh, you know, the diner scenes, uh, which would be chapter one and chapter seven, because, you know, they flow right into each other. Uh, then you would go back to the gold watch, the present day, uh, you know, where Butch kind of wakes up after remembering uh, the story of his father's gold watch. Um, then you would uh, probably go to you would probably go to uh, the date between well, not really a date. Uh, John Travolta taking Uma Thurman out because Uma Thurman uh, is the wife of his boss, Marcellus Wallace. Uh, you would get that. Um, and you would then probably go back to the gold watch, the whole thing with that, with Butch not throwing the fight and then getting on the run. And this is where, uh, you know, Vincent Vega gets killed. And that's probably where it would end like that if you were to sort of re-edit this film and put it in chronological order. But if you think about it, it's just not as fun. Um, watching it being told like this, it was just so unique. And I think the reason I really liked it so much and I, I, the, the reason that this film like really, really resonated with me. Um, I mean, I think it really, really resonated with me. Sorry about that. Was really this, because of this unique style. Um, you know, it was something different. And it, it was... It, it, I didn't get the feeling that it was like different just to be different. I mean, this this was Quentin Tarantino's unique vision. You know, he he had his reasons for making the film this way, and I'm really really glad that he did. Um, I also like the fact that you know he does kind of go back to this this type of storytelling, especially you know if you watch Kill Bill, it does also have that very disjointed sort of you know non chronological storytelling mode. It keeps it fresh. It really does keep it fresh because when you're going from chapter to chapter, from scene to scene, like you really don't know what you're going to get, especially in the beginning. Like as as characters are introduced, you know. You don't know. And that opening, I mean, not even the opening diner scene. Uh, you know, the opening scene where where Vince and Jules are driving. You know, first of all, they're driving and they're having this long conversation. You know, Royale with cheese, uh, Lay Big Mac and all that. Um, that's what it was. I didn't go to Burger King. That's what it was. It wasn't Wendy's. Ah, oh, man, I didn't go to Burger King. Um, you know, when they're having that long conversation, you know, who are these guys? You know, what role are they playing in? Then, then they talk about the fact that Vince has to um, take um, Marcellus Wallace's wife out. And, you know, they get into the whole conversation. You know, he threw a man out of a window for giving her a foot massage. <laughs> That's a little foreshadowing there of Quentin Tarantino and his foot fetish, I think. Um, you know, that that whole thing, it's, it's, it's sort of like, you know, what's, what's going on here? You know, and, and it really forces you to pay attention. Um, 
like I said, you know, Kill Bill, he does it, he does it again like that. Um, he kind of does it in Reservoir Dogs. Um, you know, Reservoir Dogs is more sort of like, there's more sort of flashbacks and, and, and whatnot, you know, than this one where it's really a story that's just cut up or it's, you know, but if you really think about it, you know, it's it's all these characters are, are all related. I mean, you know, Vince and Jules, uh, they're hitmen, they're best friends. Well, we're going to assume they're best friends who work for Marcellus Wallace, whose wife, Uma Thurman, is Mia Wallace. Uh, you know, we see Vince and Mia, you know, go out. Um, you know, he has to Marcellus is out of town. So, you know, he has to keep Mia entertained. Um, Bruce Willis is butch. Of course, you know, he's the boxer that Marcellus Wallace asks to throw a fight. Of course, he does not throw that fight. So Marcellus is very, very upset. We get that whole scene. <laughs> Bring out the gimp. You know what I'm talking about? Um, you, you know, it's it's like you really see how all these people, how their lives are connected. And then, you know, you go back to um, you go back to um, Tim Roth and Amanda Plummer in the diner there, which, you know, as you're watching this film, if you could still remember that opening scene, you're almost sort of like, well, was that like a cold open almost? You know, <laughs> like like this is going to be a violent film. You know, look at these two. They're, they're ripping off a diner. Um you know, but then when, when at the end, when you see them there at the end of the film, it's like, wow, that's that's how that's how even they are involved in all of this. You know, it's sort of like it's sort of it, it's really not one story. You know, it's definitely several stories, but it's really more sort of like you can't even say it's like, oh, it's a day in the life of so and so. It's almost sort of like, you know, um, a day or two in the life of this area of Los Angeles or California or wherever, wherever this film was supposed to take place. You know, it's almost sort of like if you took a camera or you had multiple cameras and you just told, you know, let's say you, 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 you grab five cameras and you tell four of your friends, you know, all right, we're going to stay within the limits of our town and I'm going to follow this couple over here, you know, and you guys pick you know, two or three people, you know, uh, an individual or a couple, and you follow them around. And we're going to do that for the next, you know, day or so. And then you make a movie out of it, you know, and somehow their stories are separate, yet they're also related because they're all, you know, together. I mean, it's the story just comes together. I I mean, it's it's really, really hard to explain. And I just, I, I remember really enjoying this film. Really, just like I said, just just because of that, just because of that really unique um, storytelling, and like I said, even some of the, even some of the tropes, you know, some of the some of the um, some of the um, classic Quentin Tarantino tropes and things like that 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 you see, um, you know, really got kind of got their start here, even in Reservoir Dogs too. Um, you know, the disjointed storytelling. Um, just the extended conversations, uh, eclectic conversations, you know, punchy kind of dialogue that on the one hand doesn't seem to fit with the film. You know, um, when Tim Roth and Amanda Plummer are in the diner in the beginning and they're having a conversation and the conversation starts to turn towards, you know, you know, you really, you know, the best place to rob is a diner because, you know, people wouldn't expect it. At first you're thinking, like, is this just some couple just having a weird conversation with one another? Like, you know, 
Like if you were with your friend or your girlfriend or your wife and you just said to her like, all right, you know, just for the hell of it. If you had to rob someplace, where would you rob? You know, and it's like, you're not going to do it. You know, you're just, you're just having a weird conversation, you know, sort of like, you know, you know, if, if, if commando fought Rambo, who would win? You know, it's fake. It's not going to happen, you know, but, but, but that's like a conversation that people like to have to, to, to pass the time or whatever. But I think what also, you know, these aren't just throwaway conversations, you know, Jules and Vince, you know, Vince talking about what they call, you know, the Big Mac and the Quarter Pounder with cheese, you know, over in France. I mean, that's not just throwaway dialogue. I mean, you learn in that conversation between Vince and Jules, you learn so much about Vince. You learn so much about Jules. I mean, you pretty much learn that Vince... (laughs) Vince is Vince is an idiot basically and he's really happy just kind of going through life um you know and Jules you know Jules is a very complex character I mean this is this is a professional hitman but he's got some religion in him and you know he's kind of like the wise like he's kind of like the wise sage here and Vince is almost sort of like the disciple that's just an idiot and just just doesn't listen to 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 what this fountain of information this the, this very knowledgeable man driving him to another hit we're going to find out in a few minutes you know he he he's just he's just you know whatever 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 you know was in Amsterdam for a couple of years I work for Marcellus Wallace I kill people I love heroin you know like like that's that's Vince you know it's just you, you get that in these conversations and you know the fact that there's a lot well for this film there's a lot of driving you know i mean quentin tarantino loves that he loves i mean watch once upon a time in hollywood and once upon a time in hollywood time out let's start over watch once upon a time in hollywood which i did talk about uh, right after i saw it uh and you will see extended driving scenes i mean he loves these things you know he loves these he loves having these conversations and again you know if you really think about it you know when you probably first saw this film you might have thought what are these people talking about this is so stupid what does this have to do with anything what does this have to do with the movie you know the conversation, you know, lay Big Mac, Royale with cheese. You know, what does that have to do with the fact that they have to go get this mysterious briefcase, you know, they're hitmen, and then later on, he's got to take out, you know, Mia Wallace and, and, you know, keep her entertained while trying not to do anything inappropriate and get killed and this, you know, what does that have to do with anything? But if you think about it, if you are carpooling to work, because if you think about it, that's what Vincent Jules are doing. They are carpooling to work. You know, they're driving to work, basically. And, you know, if you're if you're there with a friend, you know, you're going to have a weird conversation like that. You know, I mean, I can't even say it's a weird conversation. It's a normal conversation. You know, if I... Um, if I'm driving with one of my friends and we're going somewhere and, you know, it's not a five minute trip, you know, if it's, you know, a half hour trip or something, we're not just going to listen to the radio. We're going to talk about stuff. You know, we're going to talk about things that happen in our lives. And, you know, we might have those weird, you know, Rambo, Rambo versus Commando, man, who would win? What do you think? You know, what, what did you, did you ever see so-and-so film? What'd you think of that? I mean, these are conversations that you have. So it's like he's making this, this ultra violent you know, over the top, you know, film, but he's making it real 
by making these characters very, very real. I mean, they're having these same kind of conversations that you would have, you know, with your friends and boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, and, and whatnot. And I think that's what was really, really appealing about it. Um, another trope that you see here that is kind of famous uh, in Quentin Tarantino's films is the soundtrack. Now, if you listen... There's no score, you know, there's no orchestral, you know, John Williams did not write the score for this film. The the quote unquote score for this film was picked by Quentin Tarantino and it's eclectic music. I mean, it's music that, you know, he just loves and appreciates because Quentin, Quentin Tarantino loves, he loves a lot of stuff and he loves a lot of old stuff. And that's what you get here is you get a lot of these, you know, sort of like soul and, and rock songs from, from the 60s and, and the early 70s. And, you know, I had bought soundtracks before. You know, you see a film and, and you know, I actually went on um, Nerd and Me with my friends John and Alan. We did this a while back. We talked about uh, best soundtracks of uh, the 80s, I believe. And, uh, like, I put Pretty in Pink down there because it had good songs and everything. And, and, you know, that's why I got it. It had really, really good songs. I came out of Pulp Fiction going, man, I got to get this soundtrack because it's got a ton. It's got a ton of great films. I'm just going to kind of list some of the songs. Uh, you hear Jungle, Bo- uh, Jungle Boogie by Cool and the Gang, Let's Stay Together by Al Green, um, Bustin' Surfboards by The Tornadoes, Lonesome Town by Ricky Nelson, uh, Son of a Preacher Man by Dusty Springfield. Uh, if you don't know who Dusty Springfield is, I mean, she, she was a singer from the 60s. Man, she has got a hell of a voice, let me tell you. Um, Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon. Uh, which was written by Neil Diamond. I don't know if he ever performed it, but this was um, this was kind of like a, an updated. Uh, this was a cover done by a group called Urge Overkill. But this is again, this is this is a, a song I believe is from the the sixties. Um, you know, there's. I mean, I mean, it's just it's it's a lot of sort of like there's some soul music in there and kind of like more like the 60s surf scene kind of music in there and you know that's one of the things that he does is 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 this is music that he loves you know for whatever reason it really really speaks to him and you know this was this was a soundtrack album that like I really wanted to get because I just it's just like I wanted to know this music better I I, I wanted to it's almost like I kind of had a feeling like if I get this soundtrack, it's going to help me understand the film better. And if you ever got it, uh, you know, I believe I got it on cassette back then. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, if you're of the age, you didn't get cassettes. I mean, when you would open the cassette, um, there would be uh, there would be like a sleeve in it, I guess, that that held the cassette inside the little plastic case. And on the on the front of the sleeve would be the album cover art. And then inside was usually the track listing. And it was like a flip out. And, you know, sometimes it would just have like, you know, writers and producers. And sometimes it would be a little bit thicker because there would be notes in there. And Quentin Tarantino had put notes in there about every song and why he chose them and, and, and just crazy stuff about the film. So it really did help you understand the film better. Uh, another trope that we see here in this film uh, that we really go on to see in a lot of his films, you know, going forward is, you know, he loves to pay homage to things that he loves. And, you know, those pulp style magazines and pulp style movies, you know, from the 30s and the 40s and into the 50s. 
I mean, that's why it's called Pulp Fiction. You know, that's why the movie poster with Mia Wallace, you know, posed the way she is and with the appearance like it's an old book cover. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people picked up on that. But, you know, this is what we really, really start to see is, you know, he pays homage to a lot. Um, And especially in this film, he really, really does. And, you know, I watched it recently. A couple of weeks ago, I watched it. And let me tell you. 25 years later, this film really holds up. It still holds up. It is a great film. Um, you know, and I was really, I was really honest and I was really like kind of, I don't want to say critical, but I was really making myself be honest and saying, look, you loved it 25 years ago. Try to erase all that and just watch it again and see if it holds up for you. And you know what? It really, really does. Um, For me personally, Quentin Tarantino is hit or miss. There's films of his that I like, and there's films of his that I don't really like so much. If you listen to my take on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it was an okay film, you know, and and I feel like that's what I get with Quentin Tarantino. I get some great films, Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2, you know, this film, Reservoir Dogs, and then you get some films like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Jackie Brown that, okay, they're okay. Okay, it's you never really know what you're going to get with him. But you know what? You're going to go see him. And if he says, look, yeah, I was kidding. You know, I am going to make another film. And and if he does make another film, even though Once Upon a Time in Hollywood didn't wow me, I would definitely go see it because you know what? He's got a unique vision and, you know, like him, hate him. He sticks to his vision and you got to give him credit for that and you definitely got to go check it out guys thanks for listening i had a ton of fun talking about this uh as you know september's not over still got plenty of time left so and i got a lot more requests and i'm definitely going to get to and uh i hope you enjoy this and i hope you enjoy some of the some of the uh movies and whatnot that i'm going to be talking about during listener request month so stay tuned to hear what i talk about next sometime next week though i am going to stick in a non-listener request month thing uh nba 2k20 just dropped the other day i have it i'm playing it so i'm going to give you guys my review this is jay and i will talk to you later